0: Welcome to Movement Memos, a Truthout podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, Kelly Hayes. We're a couple of days late this week because, like most organizers, I have been busy over the last few days doing my best to support my community. In Chicago, as in other major cities, we have seen mass protests and mass arrests. We have also seen fires and insurrection. And we also saw the temporary suspension of a food program for Chicago public school families, a suspension I would characterize as collective punishment for the protests. The program was restored after a day of organizing and outcry. Prior to all of this, I had recorded an interview with grassroots strategist Ajaris Dixon that was going to be this week's episode. But as we confronted the crises unfolding in our cities over the weekend, Ajaris and I decided it wasn't the right content for this moment. Ajaris is with us again today, and I want to thank you so much for circling back to talk about these ideas we've been discussing. I know how busy you are right now, and I'm so grateful that you're taking the time for this.
1: Hi, Kelly. I'm so grateful to be here and to be able to discuss uh,
0: fascism and organizing, um, particularly in these times. Before we dig in, Do you want to tell folks a bit about what's been happening where you live?
1: Absolutely. So I'm in Brooklyn, and similarly, we've had a lot of protests, a lot of resistance, folks figuring out how to resist in the ways that were accessible to them. Also, a site of rebellion. We had the police murder a young person one neighborhood away from me, and we also— heard of somebody who, these are both Black people, a Black person who was um, recently, I think two days ago, killed in prison by being pepper sprayed. So it is hard. And what heartens me is that people deeply, deeply want change and and are doing whatever we need to do to get
0: it. Well, thank you for that. There's been so much happening that even for folks who are paying close attention, it can be hard to keep up. So to give our listeners some context for what we're going to say here, Ajaris and I are friends who have been there for each other over the last three and a half years as we've coped with our fears about the ascent of fascism. As black and native organizers, respectively, and as disabled activists who have organized against state violence for years, we recognized we were on dangerous ground. Neither of us studied fascism in college. We're simply, as a jurist would say, bitches who read. And we have read a lot in the past few years and examined our situation closely. We've tracked the march of fascism in the U.S. and tried to anticipate its progression. As organizers, we have also tried to gauge what interventions might be necessary and discussed what we might have to do to ensure our safety. We were a lifeline to each other in moments when many others thought we were being alarmist and that our situation would never deteriorate to the extent that it has. I mean, at least we weren't being called alarmist alone. Right? Because that shit gets lonely. Honey? Even though being disbelieved was difficult, being right is even harder. It's not what we wanted. But we're here now. And as organizers, we don't have time to fall apart or get stuck in a cycle of despair. Our biggest concern is helping our communities navigate this difficult moment of grief, rebellion, and fascist brutality. So, in the hopes of helping those who would resist in these times, we want to share with you all some of what we've learned about fascism and its role in the current crisis. But this week, we want to zero in on one particular aspect of that conversation. Ajaris wrote a really important piece for Truthout in April called, fascists are using COVID-19 to advance their agenda. It's up to us to stop them. In the piece, Ajaris broke down the fascist emergency playbook and how Trump's use of fascist strategies has accelerated. After Ajaris wrote the article, she heard from numerous folks who liked it but also wanted to know, What's our playbook? Well, Egeris and I talked about it, because that's what we do. And Egeris came up with some key points that we've flushed out together that we want to share with you today. These ideas are a work in progress. But we wanted to share that progress with you, because that feels like the most useful thing to do right now. Because as Trump threatens to overrule state leadership and dominate U.S. cities with military action— I think we're all feeling some urgency around the idea of what's in our playbook for these times.
1: We will dig into a fascist now soon, but for right now, we want to hone in on some key ideas and principles. The first is the need for broadening alliances. It's easy to be overwhelmed by fascism in action. Fascist violence is bold and brazen. It strikes fear into our hearts, and it's one of its primary functions fascists move quickly and violently to overwhelm their targets. By creating a state of chaos, fascists seek to keep opponents in a reactive mode, constantly playing defense and never developing or deploying an effective counter strategy. But the fact is fascists are in the minority. There are more of us than them. They only outnumber us if we're unwilling to broaden our alliances and fortify a united front.
0: People organizing on the left are often told that they should challenge their racist family members. And yet, despite expecting organizers to make intergenerational peace at the dinner table, leftists rarely expect themselves to make peace at the negotiating table when doing coalition work. Instead, leftists try to fashion their organizing circles into a family dinner table without ideological dissent. This keeps our local efforts small and scattered.
1: Exactly. If leftists can be strategic at family reunions, navigating racist family members, homophobic and transphobic family members, we can be strategic when we're building power in our coalition work. Not everyone we work with on a particular issue has to have deep ideological alignment with us. A skilled organizer should be able to work with people who aren't of their own choosing, including people that they don't like. It's really as simple as being attacked by fascist police in the streets. Once the attack begins, there are two sides. Armed police inflicting violence and everyone else. We need to be able to see each other in those terms, reeling in the face of unthinkable violence, scrambling to stay alive and uncaged, and doing the work to protect one another.
0: There is a difference between unity and a strategic alliance. A strategic alliance can be temporary. In fact, an alliance broad enough to bring down fascism would almost certainly be temporary because we would not have the ideological cohesion to agree on a larger vision of what the world should look like, at least not yet. But what we can do is draw a line between ourselves and the fascists here and now and declare that we surrender nothing and no one to these people. Another
1: element of our playbook is the development of an emotionally and spiritually captivating vision. Those of us who might align against fascism have some shared values. For example, if we could unite everyone who believes that Black and Native people deserve to live, an incredibly basic idea, and give those people tasks to mobilize around, opportunities for political education and relationship building, we would obviously build solidarity between our communities. We know that it sounds simple, and that political objectives that sound simple are rarely easy, but it is essential work. Any coalition where everyone is in immediate agreement about everything is too small to stop the march of fascism, period.
0: On issues like the environment and healthcare, we have common ground with many people who we neither love nor like. An emotionally and spiritually captivating vision might include universal health care or housing for all, Amid our current civil unraveling and economic crash, more people are going to be open to questioning the system and how it operates. For years, we've told people in our work that their sense of inevitability has been manufactured by their oppressors. Now, people are seeing for themselves that the so-called inevitabilities of this system are fabrications. It has never been easier to find common ground. As a jumping-off point, most of us are frightened and uncertain. That uncertainty is a beginning, an opening, in which organizers on the left can present something hopeful. It is much easier to mobilize people in support of what they desire than in opposition to what they oppose.
1: This is one of the reasons mutual aid networks are so important right now, because mutual aid is survival work done by and for the people. That means it's fueled by mutual concern and manifests the lived desires and ingenuity of the people who organize it. In such spaces, there's room for visioning work that could help shift the course of the society. From labor unions to member organizations, collectives and ragtag mutual aid groups, we need frameworks that unite people behind what they want and need. We need to build culture around these pursuits with art and music, and taking action is not enough. We must build culture and community to power our movements. We're not all religious, but most of us hold something sacred. We must bring that sacredness into collective spaces and contribute to a larger vision that can bind us together, mobilize more of us, activate more of us, even if that larger alliance is temporary.
0: This will involve a lot of education because we do not fully understand each other. Understanding won't always bring agreement, but it will help us navigate the creation of the alignment we need to survive and halt the march of fascism. This is also an opportunity to invite people to imagine bolder versions of ideas they have begun to embrace. For example, COVID-19 has driven home the torturous nature of the prison system, just as police riots have reminded us of the true nature of policing. We can create spaces for discussion with people whose worldview has begun to shift or crack and invite them who explore ideas like prison abolition, which many of them have been conditioned to see as a descent into chaos, rather than a long-term construction project aimed at the creation of a society that would have no need for the prison industrial complex. We have the power to organize people behind visionary ideas.
1: People often talk about organizing as though it's the art of telling the truth in a convincing manner. Telling the truth is the easy part, mobilizing people, even people who generally agree with you, is more difficult. Doing the work of persuasion and finding partial agreement or shared inspiration is the organizing work we must do, because fascism is an existential threat to everything that we value and hold sacred. Another aspect of our playbook is the need to build deep relationships and solidarity across our communities. This may sound like it contradicts the idea that broad alliances can be temporary, but it doesn't. We only feel outnumbered by the fascists because we're not significantly connected to one another. We do not have to love people or fully agree with them to practice reciprocal care or to lock arms against fascism. In the months and years ahead, we will need to show up for each other in some scary ways. Some of us will have to put our bodies on the line to protect and defend one another. Sustained solidarity of that caliber does not happen by accident. It must be built and reinforced over time. We will need that level of solidarity to defend our bodies, our freedom, our homes, our rights. We will need that solidarity to fight fascist scapegoating and develop a shared understanding that an injury to any community that's being vilified and dehumanized by the fascists is an attack on us all.
0: This will not come easily because white supremacy and classism have forced many wedges between our communities. Great harms have been committed and very difficult conversations are needed. But refusing to do that work in this historical moment is an abdication of responsibility. It is no exaggeration to say that the whole world is at stake, and we cannot afford to minimize what that demands of us. Another aspect of our playbook is navigating grief, pain, and discomfort. Ideas like healing justice and self care have at times been twisted to sprinkle aspects of capitalism and individualism over our movement spaces. These ideas can be warped in ways that are oppositional to organizing an action. Healing justice is intended to make our movements stronger. But some have taken it to mean that we should be able to create spaces or work where we're all comfortable and where our trauma can be fully attended to. This work is difficult it sometimes requires conversations and experiences that are injurious to us. We should not subject ourselves to abuse in organizing spaces for the sake of our movements, but we must learn the difference between discomfort and abuse. Organizing is a journey through injustice in pursuit of a different world. Most people who've won revolutions, who've led movements, have sacrificed a lot. So while it is essential that we create space for joy, fellowship, and belonging, we must also hold space for conflict and understand that not everything will be resolved or repaired to our satisfaction. Just as a riot is not a scalpel that only harms the guilty, our movements are not perfect vehicles for change that deliver a steady stream of pleasure and fulfillment.
1: Acknowledging that we must navigate grief, pain, harm, Violence, discomfort, doesn't mean that we should tell people to suck it up and continue on. We need deep systems of care. We need skill building for conflict and coping. We need grief rituals that acknowledge our losses and our traumas. We need to get better at supporting people to take care of themselves so that they're in our movements for the long haul. The navigation of pain and loss and anger is a massive project, but we can build that infrastructure in our communities piece by piece if we are willing to do so. The last idea in our playbook that we want to drive home today is the creation of multi-year, multi-tactic strategy. We believe in a diversity of tactics. History tells us that no singular tactic overthrows an oppressive system or brings about a new world. We need to throw every tactic we can at our enemies, whether it's at the ballot box or in the streets, and we need to have a long game that extends well beyond our survival of the immediate crises our fascist enemies create. The most successful efforts we have been a part of as organizers were multi-layered. They involved legislative work, electoral work, communication strategies, direct action organizing, mutual aid, and other interventions. Those efforts had conflicts over strategies, language, and tactics, but the work continued. This requires us to center alignment over an impulse to manage movement work. We cannot get caught up in arguments over binaries of good and bad protests or good and bad tactics. We need to be flexible and to understand that even when we're not friends, we are likewise not enemies.
0: Fascism strikes quickly and violently. It aims to keep us off balance. Cycles of lateral critique and condemnation that lead nowhere are folly. And folly is something that we cannot afford. Our cities are on fire. Our people are being thrown in cages that are quickly becoming death chambers. We are seeing the worst horrors in U.S. history reimagined and redeployed against those this country has traditionally victimized. Black people, Native people, Latinx folks, disabled people, immigrants, Jewish people, trans folks, and other marginalized people but it would be harmful of us to say this moment is just another iteration of the same evils that have plagued this country throughout its history. Because history is a progression of events, not a series of comparisons. And we must not normalize the evolution and ascent of full-blown fascism. Under full-blown fascism, we would not simply be at odds with Trump's fascist unreality. We would be consumed by it. Living in a world we would no longer recognize, it would still be our duty to cultivate hope and build power against our enemies. But action now could prevent that brand of dystopia from coming into being.
1: What we want is a different world, and that will not come easily. The deeply troubled world we live in, where we are often oppressed, attacked, and afraid, is under siege by people who would plunge us further into the depths of our worst fears. We are not helpless, and we are not out of moves. We will be talking more soon about fascism and how we can organize against it. We'll be digging into some history and some of the present realities we are up against. But for now, we wanted to bring you these ideas in the hopes that they might help you begin to imagine your own playbook, or to expand upon whatever game plan you already have. These are desperate, frightening times, but they are not hopeless. We have an immeasurable amount of untapped power within ourselves and within our communities. And there are more of us, So we hope you will hold these ideas in your hearts and in your minds, as we all work to find our footing in the moment. We trust your creativity and courage, and we believe that more and more of us are becoming ready to do the difficult work ahead. There will be joy in that work and fellowship and purpose, but there will also be pain and loss. But if we take these hits together, we are less likely to fail. And our solidarity just might sink roots that are strong enough to
0: survive. We want to add that your mileage may vary, and whatever approach you take, we want to send our love and appreciation to everyone who is demanding justice right now.
1: And I just want folks to remember that we have everything we need to defeat fascism, as long as we remember all of our power.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much, Ajaris, for making time to talk today. I know we're all in emergency mode and I am just so grateful for your time and for your friendship and for your wisdom.
1: Oh, Kelly, I'm so grateful for you and to be in this together.
0: You all will get a chance to learn more about Ageris and the incredible work she's been doing in our next episode. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. If you're headed outside, please be safe out there. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good, and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, we'll see you online and in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.